Because of love, because our sins are covered, we come together this evening and we extend a warm welcome to you as we come to worship. We are in the middle of Holy Week, perhaps the most important week in the history of the world. Last Sunday, we remembered how Jesus had triumphantly entered into Jerusalem at the exaltation of the people. And now, before the people turn on him, he is about to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples. They've gathered in the upper room. We call it Maundy Thursday. Maundy comes from the Latin word meaning mandate or commandment. And you remember that that night, Jesus tells his followers and us in John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. Jesus demonstrates his servant love to his disciples by washing their feet and then giving them a meal, which he has now passed on to us. A meal which would be much more understandable after what would happen the next day. We call it Good Friday. As he would hang from a cross, crucified with a broken body and shed blood, showing the ultimate love as he gives his life for his friends. And he also would give seven words or sayings from that cross. At the foot of the cross were those who loved Jesus and also those who had scoffed at him. Christ is hanging on the cross, speaking these short phrases, but they are full of meaning and depth which only a look at the life and death of Jesus can unpack. Tonight, we take a look at these seven words, and we will partake of that very same meal. A number of our staff members will lead us through these words. We will sing, and we will pray, and we will ponder throughout the evening. As we come to the first word, let us pray. Father, we come together this evening as your people We come from hectic schedules and pressured lives and relationships. We come in need of forgiveness and hope and love. And we come needing to hear from the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Come by your spirit and fill us and work deeply to grow each of us as we consider your life and death for us even this evening. We pray in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. The first word from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Who says this but the one who created the world? And he came into that world and it did not know him. At his birth, there was no room for him in the end, foreshadowing how he was to be treated by men. After his death, Herod sought to kill him along with his enemies, and now their desire has been granted. Christ yields up his life. He goes through a mock trial. He was crucified. When is it that Jesus says this? After being beaten, ridiculed, crowned with thorns, and nailed to the cross, there between two criminals, he hangs, bruised, dirty, and weak. And he says, Father, forgive them. Whom does Jesus address from the cross? Three times from the cross, he addresses God. 
twice calling him father in the first word and in the last word. Nothing, not even death, ultimately threatened his relationship with his father. What really is Jesus saying? Father, forgive them. Is he crying for pity? No. Cursing his crucifiers? No. Judging them? No. Punishing them? No. He is praying for his enemies, for forgiveness. Jesus began his public ministry in prayer, and now he is closing his public ministry in prayer. Christ does not pray for himself as perhaps we would, but he prays for those who are persecuting him. The prayer was efficacious. It had effect. One of the thieves experienced forgiveness that very day. And then weeks later, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 trusted in Christ, the one whom they had crucified, and they experienced forgiveness in answer to the very prayer of Jesus. And then Hebrews 7 tells us that Christ always lives to make intercession for his people. There was sin, and Christ prays from the cross that the sinners would be forgiven, How was forgiveness of sin obtained? There was a price that had to be paid, and it was paid by Christ. If we're truthful, we realize even tonight that it was our sin which is being dealt with as Christ hangs on that cross to pay the price to accomplish our forgiveness. Who among us does not truly long to know that we are cleansed, to know that we are forgiven, that our sins are no longer held against us. We can know that solely because of Christ, our mediator. Christ was consistent with his very own teachings. What he had preached on the Sermon on the Mount, he now practiced on that grim hill of Calvary. The first word from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second word, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. As Jesus was being crucified alongside two criminals, he spoke these words to one of them because that man had confessed belief even as he was hanging on a cross, dying next to Jesus. What's amazing about those words is not that they apply only to that man but that they also apply to all of us as believers even today. We will be with Christ in paradise. But we should ask, do we live in light of that reality? Do we have hope because of this great future? Do we take solace in the fact that we are in reality going to be with Jesus Christ in heaven for eternity? Is that where you place your hope? If not, where do you find hope? Do you even feel like you have hope right now? Maybe you don't even think about it consciously, but if you do, just take a moment and think about those things that you value in life. Think about where you naturally gravitate when you're tired or anxious or lonely. What things bring you comfort? What brings solace? Perhaps it's Netflix after a day that's just a long day of work, or a great meal, talking with friends, playing games, where is it you find hope? Perhaps it's one of those. 
But the truth is, no matter where we look for hope, whether secular or sacred, the truth is we want hope. We search for hope. We spend most of our lives searching out and grasping for hope to be assured that things will be okay. We want assurance that we're right or that we're safe or that we're truly loved. We buy insurance, right? So we can say that we are assured that our loved ones will be taken care of after we're gone, or that we can have access to the medical care we need when we need it. We seek validation from others in relationship with us. Sometimes even we'll go over what someone said and be like, are there words like, that just assure me that they actually like me for me? Or is this like some sort of weird one-sided relationship? Like, do they actually like me? We're in a constant search for assurance. But we should ask, how often do we truly feel that assurance? Does buying insurance actually take away our worry? Do you ever really stop wondering deep down, am I lovable? We all need to hear the words that Jesus spoke to the thief on the cross. Because Jesus, who is God himself, tells that criminal that he will surely be in paradise with him that very day. Think on that. Was this criminal a great human to deserve such a promise from God himself? Certainly not. At that very moment, he was being executed for his crimes. No, the only thing he had done was confess belief, true belief in Jesus. And there is a great deal of hope that we can find there. All we need in order to have a future, to have the brightest of all futures and the greatest of all hopes is Christ. That's it. And our hope isn't based on anything that we do. Just as that thief could do nothing for himself at that moment, he had nothing to commend himself. So too it is with us. We could never do enough, given infinite time, to earn a place with God to earn a place in paradise. But our future and our hope is pinned with Christ upon the cross. It rests with him because he did all the work for us. All we have to do is confess and believe. So friends, rest in the hope that only Christ can provide. Find comfort and assurance there. And if you have believed in him, hear his words. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. The angel had visited her nearly 35 years earlier in the Annunciation. She prepared her to be, as it were, the mother of God the nurturer of the Messiah. Mary humbly accepted, responding, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And it was. She raised Jesus as the son of man, but could, could realize that he was so much more. What she saw through the 30 years prior to Christ's public ministry, Luke says, she treasured all these things in her heart. She raised other children, but her firstborn, was the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This son was the Son of Man, who humbled himself to experience all of the degradation 
struggle and weakness of a human being living in a fallen world, yet without sin. What sorrow for him, knowing he had created this world perfectly as God the Son. Mary deep down knew he was special. She no doubt lay awake at night pondering the prophecy of Simeon. Mary and Joseph marveled at the things that were said about their unique son. However, Mary remembered the last statement of Simeon, that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now she understood the meaning of that as she trembling watched her son endure the untold physical and spiritual agony of crucifixion. Had it come to this, Mary had seen for herself the rejection, the opposition, the slander, and the death plots against him throughout the three years of his public ministry. But now she was witnessing the ultimate fulfillment of that solemn prophetic promise. Of all who looked upon Jesus at the cross, none could have suffered as Mary did. Furthermore, the relationships one notices in this statement of Jesus are so close. Jesus to Mary, Jesus to John, John to Mary, Mary to John. Jesus speaks out in the midst of overwhelming pain and struggle to care for others. Almost unreal that he could gain enough presence of mind to do so, but he does. He sensitively calls to his mother first, woman, a term used to mean madam or ma'am. Saying mother might have been more than she could bear. He does not say John, although his head movement or eye contact might have been enough for John to understand his wishes. We know the special friendship between Jesus and John. He did not need to go into detail with John about Mary. In this narrative and other places in his gospel, he refers to himself obscurely as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Maybe this explains why Jesus did not choose anyone else, even his own half-brothers or sisters, to help Mary. How do you and I handle this? One appropriate response would be to take our cue from Mary's obvious affectation here. Is my heart pierced? Is yours? Over our sin, both original and actual? Do I lament and mourn that it is my crimes, treacheries, and adulteries that caused the Son of God to pay the ultimate price for me to live, delivered from the penalty of sin? He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Finally, did you pick it up? Jesus knows us by name. He calls us personally to himself for whatever he has for us. He had said so often in his public ministry, I have called you friends. Paul writes, we who were enemies have been reconciled to God by the death of his son. We have the secure hope of a permanent and intimate relationship with God. Typified here as his words to Mary and John teach us. And we also have this with each other. As one Christian writer put it, there are no little people. Let us treat all people with tenderness and kindness, 
especially those of the household of faith. If our Savior could do this in his infinite agony, how can we do any less? Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. The fourth word, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the sixth hour, which was about noon, an unnatural darkness overtook the sky. Jesus had been hanging on the cross, crucified for about three hours, and he uttered these words, words of anguish. Are there any of us here who don't, to some degree, understand what it feels like, what it feels like to be forsaken by God? We cry out, but we feel there's no answer. And we feel heartache, loss, loneliness. And we have the overwhelming feeling that this isn't fair. The feeling is, if God is good, why has he forsaken me? Yet, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the only one of us who could truly say God had forsaken him. Already from his 33 years on earth, Jesus knew what it was to feel humiliated, abandoned, and rejected. But on the cross, he took upon the sin of the world, and he learned what it was to be a sinner separated from God. Jesus had been united with the Father for eternity past. So on the cross, he was separated from God for the very first time. And he did it for us. We can never look to Jesus and say, you don't understand. Jesus, you don't understand. Because truly, he can understand the weight of our sin and utter separation from God in a way that we never will. That we'll never have to. See, of all the pain and humiliation that Jesus had to bear, the scourging, the weight of the cross on his back, the nails being driven into his hands and his feet. This was the greatest pain of all, the separation from the Father, the hell that Jesus descended into. This was the cup of God's wrath poured out for the sins of all humanity, and Jesus drank it for you and for me. When Jesus asked, why have you forsaken me? He was quoting Psalm 22. And when David penned Psalm 22, it was a prayer for rescue. But Jesus would get no rescue, at least not in the way anyone expected. After Jesus said these words, we're told some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And they waited to see whether Elijah would come to take him down. Jesus allowed his hearers to fill in the gaps because they were familiar with Psalm 22. So they knew that Psalm 22 starts with these anguished words. But halfway through, David says, you have rescued me. The psalm changes to a proclamation of God's goodness. And perhaps Jesus was giving those who heard him a glimpse of what was to come. But on this day, there was no rescue for Jesus 
Elijah did not come to take him down. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf. So the father turned away from him. Shortly after saying these words, Jesus would utter a loud cry and breathe his last. And friends, I want you to know, until the day that Jesus returns and makes all things new, we will face things that aren't fair. It was some of his last words to his disciples. In this world, you will have trouble. We'll experience things that anger us, trouble us, and break our hearts. And we may even feel that God has forsaken us. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ became sin for you. He was forsaken on your behalf. And because of Christ, you can rest in the sure fact that he will never leave you nor forsake you. But on that dark day, in the sixth hour, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fifth word, I thirst. This expression was likely the shortest of the words Jesus spoke from the cross. In this moment, Jesus expressed his immediate condition of desperate human need. Human life at its most basic level requires, demands, if you will, both air and water. Execution by crucifixion was intentionally designed to be a form of slow torture by gradually shutting off these vital supplies needed for physical life. It was an extreme punishment for the extreme rebel. The victim, traumatized initially by being nailed hands and feet to a wooden cross, actually died from the gradual loss of both blood and air. It was the lack of these things that actually did the killing. When we think about dying, isn't it the slow death scenarios that strike the most fear in our hearts, whether it be for ourselves or for someone we love? Here on the cross, God himself enters deeply into the reality of our greatest fears, pains, and punishments. He enters ever so personally and intimately into raw human suffering as both a parent and a child. And yet, he willingly subjected himself only on our behalf as our substitute, taking upon himself, even into himself, exactly what our sinfulness justly deserved. Interesting, is it not, that when we most desperately lack air or water, and it is within our reach, we go for it, and we drink and breathe it in deeply, satisfying our need unashamedly. Yet, when it comes to our most ultimate of needs and the ultimate provider, the divine source of the air we breathe and the water we drink, we are often more than willing to resist him and reject his provision for us. So even though the very breath in our lungs is a gift of his grace, and even though his Holy Spirit, the breath of God, is actually the living water that springs up out of our hearts, our most base fleshly tendency is still to resist and reject him. How blindly we can become by our self-absorption, 
how numbed out we can become by our idolatries to satisfy our appetites. And what is most amazing is that it is to remedy this, our killer appetites, that Jesus willingly subjected himself to the cross. Through his obedience to his father and through his sacrificial love for those his father gave him to save, Jesus lovingly endured this slow, torturous, undeserved death sentence for us. Consider this, that as our king, high priest, and Passover lamb, God knows from the inside out your most desperate needs, physical and spiritual. He knows from the inside out the suffering and pain that this life imposes. He knows from the inside out the deep-seated fears, anxieties, and stressors you have to endure. And he knows the costly penalty that our sins deserve and the infinite cost required to redeem such a broken, sin-soaked life. So on that cross, God showed us not only the end game of sinful rebellion, but also he displayed his potent and powerful justice, mercy, and saving love, all with you in his mind and heart, that we might be reconciled to himself by faith, to know him and to make him known, May we this night not only remember the ransom price and the adoption fee paid through his death enabling us to become his children, but may we repent and believe, asking for purer hearts, and may we commit our lives to serve him afresh as ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation, as disciple makers in a world full of people yet to come to know and understand the significance of that holy week some 2,000 plus years ago. In his own timeless words, Jesus still calls us even tonight saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And may we remember with compassion, gratitude, and joy tonight, Jesus's fifth word from the cross. I thirst. The sixth word. It is finished. Tetelestai, in the original language, one word, tetelestai. It is finished. And then John 19.30 says, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In the eternal counsels of the triune God, Before the worlds were formed, it was decided willingly between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that in fact it would be the Son, the eternal Son of God, who would take on human flesh and then live perfectly a holy life in the presence of God on our behalf. And that it would be this same Son who would would take perfectly the punishment of our sins upon his person, in his person, on him completely. Of course, from eternity, God knew that sin would come, sin would kill, and sin would alienate us forever, that it would, it would be impossible for fallen sinners born in Adam's likeness to ever be able to overcome their own sin. 
to be able to offset their many, many sins from a sin nature so broken, a nature like all of ours that was infected, polluted, addicted, yes, killed by sin without any hope of personal resurrection ourselves. And so Jesus was our one hope, our only hope, our first hope, and our last hope. He was the only one who could do what we could not do for ourselves. And so after hours of agonizing, mind-destroying agony on the cross, someone moistened his lips in, utter, in order to give him the ability to utter those words to Telestai. It is finished. To be able to utter the reality that, that what had been planned before the foundation of the world was now completed, the redemption of mankind. Th- these, my brothers and sisters, are words of triumph. They're not mere statements. It's a shout, if you will, of, of triumph. The eternal plan of God was accomplished. It is accomplished. God's plan are, is always accomplished. And willingly so, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. The truth is, nothing could be added to the work of Christ. Nothing has been added. Nothing will be added. The all-sufficient one did the all-sufficient work for we who are insufficient. He did what was necessary and he was glad to do it. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his plan. It is finished. And he gave up his spirit and his spirit returned to the father until the time of the resurrection because he is the first fruits of those alive from the dead. And so what happened to him will happen to us through faith in Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and we will return with him. Because it is finished, because redemption has been accomplished, redemption could be applied to our hearts, that we could be forgiven, that we could be cleansed, that Christ could then, because it is finished, come to dwell within into vessels that we often feel are still so dirty, but that he has declared clean and he could dwell in us through his spirit as though in his temple. Because it, it is finished, he relates to us not out of, out of anger or out of law or out of judgment, but out of love as a father to his children. And we relate to him not out of fear, but out of sonship as daughters deeply beloved by the Most High God. Because it is finished, we rest, we worship, and we live energized by knowing that it is finished. We live energized by his grace to tell us that, to God be the glory, it is finished. The seventh word, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Do you believe in fairy tales? Not merely the movies 
that Disney puts out every single year, but a fairy tale where there is a hero who tries to save a kingdom from an enemy that has invaded, causing all kinds of peril, heartache, and pain. Well, we are all a part of a similar story, but one of cosmic proportions where God is the author and Jesus is the hero and we are the people affected by this enemy and it has bridged and separated this gap between us and God. And without any sort of way out of that, we are without hope. When there do we find our hope? Where do we find our lasting peace? We find our hope not in a location, not in a record of our own doing, but in a relationship with an ancient king who has come to bring life to us. And yes, because Jesus died the hero's death, we receive the king's reward. Jesus experienced a beautiful, dependent relationship with the Holy Spirit and the Father in heaven. A Father whom by his word spoke creation into existence. The same Father that would create man and woman out of clay in his own image and say, it is good. The same Father who had witnessed the greatest tragedy in mankind. Satan weaving his way into the garden, tempting Adam and Eve into sin. And generation after generation after generation of sin and pain. But God in the darkness would decree that his only son would be the hero of our story. He would come into our broken world and put on the the impurities of the flesh to dwell with us and be with us, to be our risen savior, to be our Lord, to be the serpent crusher. God, the king of all creation, would send his son of royal blood to die a sinner's death. It was by the hand of God that Jesus would come and fast for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted by Satan in the wilderness. It was by God's hand that the Pharisees and the religious elites would mock and scorn Jesus Christ. It was by the hand of God that Jesus himself would be beaten, wounded, and scarred to take up a cross and to walk up the stone steps towards Calvary's hill to be crucified. On this cross, Jesus would entrust his spirit to the Father, taking on the sins of the world, becoming sin and death and evil itself so that we could have life in his name. Jesus had complete assurance in a God who would, yes, reject him, who would, yes, forsake him, 
but would not abandon his soul. He prays this prayer of Psalm 31. Father, into your hand I entrust my spirit. You have redeemed me, O God, O faithful God. You will not abandon me, and he will not abandon you. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a serpent crusher who would defeat Satan, dying a hero's death so that we could inherit a king's reward, salvation, assurance of hope, forgiveness, a seat at the king's table, adoption. We have all of this in Christ. And because Jesus did all of this, we have hope in his name, in his name. May you entrust your spirit to God. May you entrust your soul to him. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. After observing and hearing all that happened that day on the cross, a Roman centurion said truly, This was the Son of God. Then scripture tells us that Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus, came and took the body and he laid it in his own tomb. And scripture says, and then Joseph of Arimathea rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Let us step back now from that Friday and that cross and return to Thursday evening as Christ is in the upper room with his disciples. We come tonight to partake of that very same meal which Jesus instituted that evening. This meal feeds and nurtures us as no other feast can. We come empty-handed We bring nothing because we contribute nothing to our salvation. It is the work of Christ which supplies it all. It is all of grace. If you have placed your trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior and turned from your sins, you're invited to this meal this evening. We would ask that if you've not yet trusted in Christ to save you from your sin, to not partake of these elements, but rather to ponder yourself if this is the day for you to trust Christ and his work. If you have young children tonight, we would ask that you would withhold the elements from them until they've had an opportunity to meet with the leaders of the church and to profess their faith and trust in Christ. We will be asking you to come forward to receive this meal. We would ask that you would take a piece of bread and then dip it into the juice 
and be fed. You do not have to come all at once. We would ask you to come when you are ready. We would also um, be willing to bring the elements to you if you are not able to come forward. Also, there are gluten-free elements at the small table over here that you are welcome to go to. You're also invited at any time during the Lord's Supper to come and pray at the stations over here in these chairs. You can pray in silence or you can ask for prayer from one of those who will be there to greet you and to pray for you if you have a need tonight. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread And he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same manner, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Let me ask those who will be serving the meal to come forward to the different stations. We have two on that side, one over here, and then the, the one here in the center. We ask that you would come when you're ready to come. Come for the meal and come for prayer.